Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The FT. Welcome to Alpha Chat, uh, Alphaville's fantastically infrequent podcast, now featuring an outsider, an interloper, uh, Robin Wigglesworth on the Capital Markets team. But we're lucky enough to have with us uh, Lee Bookite, the partner at Cleary Gottlieb, who, frankly, every government calls when they uh, hit a sticky patch, uh, and Joseph Cottrell from Alphaville in New York. Hello, everybody. Hello, Joseph. Hello, Robin. Well... Lee, let's start with you, and I'm sure Joseph is going to want to jump in at some point as well. And we've talked a little bit about this, but but Europe. I mean, clearly things have not been handled fantastically well. But I mean, where do you think they went wrong? I think they went wrong in making the initial policy choice that they would, instead of forcing existing creditors of the afflicted countries to stretch out their claims, uh, they decided they would lend the countries the gross amount of money needed to repay those creditors in full and on time uh, very quickly and by a process of kind of relentless incremental uh, exposure, they found themselves as the principal creditors to these countries, which they are now, uh, to the extent that a debt restructuring is a more severe one is required, uh, it will inevitably fall upon the official sector, not upon the people who lent the money. I think if they had to do it again, they might have rethought that policy choice. But why did they why did they do this? They did it, I think, for three reasons. One, they were obsessed with contagion. Uh, so the theory was restructure one euro of eurozone sovereign debt and the markets would recoil from the whole of peripheral Europe. Uh, the <coughs> second motivation was that the debt was largely owed to commercial banks in northern Europe. So force a restructuring of the debt of a country like Greece and it would inevitably visit a balance sheet trauma on northern European banks. How bad? Who knows? But possibly even requiring recapitalization at the level of the host government in northern Europe. And the third motivation, which as far as I could tell was limited to the senior management of the European Central Bank was simply that if you restructure Eurozone sovereign debt, you will indelibly stain the reputation of the euro itself, uh, and it will undermine this noble experiment and, and possibly bring it down, and that if, if need be, uh, monetizing every debt instrument south of the Rhine River is a preferable course to uh, destroying this magnificent experiment. That's how the, that's how the yeah. argument went. Well, it's great if you, as long as you're not attacked by north of the Rhine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Do you think, are we, are we on the betterment stage? I mean, we've seen, obviously, since then, we have had Greece restructure without, well, clearly staining the experiment, but without causing a complete Armageddon. And, you know, the ECB seems now sort of be playing or promising to play a credible role as a lender of last resort. So money gushed back into the periphery, and it all seems 
dare I say, almost a hunky-dory. I mean, do you, do you think it is, or do we still need some surgery or trims here and there? I don't think it's hunky-dory. I think it's premature to say that the crisis is over. <clears throat> and I suspect that uh, the statements such as Mario Draghi was making last fall, that it's all over and it's mopping up now, uh, may be premature. The world is a fragile place. Uh, Europe remains deeply in recession. I mean, just look at the figures that came out last week. It's already been going on for four years. Many of these countries are showing flat or negative growth in the near term. Huge unemployment rates... um, it's it's a very fragile situation. I wouldn't declare victory quite yet. And Joseph, I mean, as somebody who moved all the way to New York just to get away from the, sort of the inept decisions of, of parts of Europe, I mean, what's, what do you think now? I mean, with the yeah. with the distance that the the Atlantic has given you. Well, yeah, I'm not quite out of the uh, blast radius just yet. Well, we'll have to see. But uh, actually, Lee, I kind of had a question about Cyprus because when it comes to looking at this from the other side of the Atlantic. I remember covering the the Cypriot crisis in March. Uh, More or less everyone I spoke to over here in New York uh, expressed shock, maybe not surprised, yeah, more shocked than surprised, that the Europeans were so ready to reach into the pockets of bank depositors, a class of uh, investor who's kind of sacred over here in the States under FDIC protection. Well, the Europeans are ready to to raid deposits rather than to do anything with the sovereign debt. And when I talk to fund managers and general observers now, they the message they take away from Cyprus is, well, sovereign debt in Europe is clearly senior to any kind of bank creditor, including depositor. So even accepting that the situation is very fragile now, then clearly, well, that doesn't actually change anything for the sovereign debt. I'm going to continue buying Greek debt at an 8% yield or whatever because the pain will be taken by bank creditors now. So, I mean, what do you think of that? Do you think sovereign debt is indelibly more senior now than bank creditors going on in the crisis? And is that really like a healthy development? Uh, <clears throat> I think that's somewhat simplistic analysis. The mm. Cyprus... Uh, had a banking crisis. It did not so much have a sovereign debt crisis. That's one thing. Uh, You've got now an interesting split in Europe where some countries like Ireland and Cyprus, where the banking sector brought down the sovereign, and you've got other countries like Greece where the sovereign brought down the banking sector. Um, I think if you had a crisis in a country where the epicenter of the problem was not the banks, but rather the sovereign, they're not, they're not going to be able to solve it by dipping into deposits of banks. Uh, second thing I think it's important to realize is, unlike Greece, uh, which had 93% of its debt stock governed by local law, Uh, and the majority of the debt held by foreigners. A country like Cyprus, it's about evenly split in terms of governing law and much of the debt held locally. So the idea that one is instantly going to move toward a sovereign debt restructuring in a situation like that, not only is it more difficult from a legal and administrative standpoint, uh, 
you also have to realize there's a huge degree of self-inflicted wound. Yes, you are reducing your debt service, but arguably only at the cost of increasing the need to recapitalize your banking system. So uh, I don't think I would take away from Cyprus a simple conclusion that uh, bank depositors are now uh, the first, the best, and the only line of defense. Um, I think Cyprus is uh, can be explained by the special circumstances of Cyprus. Well, I mean, also there's this this the fact that when when your sovereign debt is held by domestics, so I mean, I know you've called it human shields in the past, I and mean, it means it's very hard to restructure. I mean, this seems to be the issue in in other parts of Europe as well, where in Portugal, in Spain, in Italy, countries that you know. I, Ideally, would like to get their debt stock down. It's basically held by domestic banks, and yeah. you'll be you know, cutting off your nose despite your face. What's the solution then for these other countries? I mean, if you can't go, I mean, and ideally, I hope for anybody who's got a deposit anywhere in Europe, hopefully they won't go after depositors willy nilly. You can't always go for the, for the banks, and you can't really go for the sovereigns. And what does that really leave? Well, Joseph's comment about the deposits and the European willingness to tax and in the end to uh, not exp- steal to, <laughs> to, to tax and take some yeah. of the deposit the real consequence of that will not be felt until the next country uh, the, in my view the deposits in Europe have always been the Achilles heel of the whole system because if you think about it a sovereign issues a bond for 10 years can trade down to 10 cents on the euro. That's an embarrassment, but not a catastrophe. You don't really worry about it until the 10th year when it matures. But the deposits, the deposits you worry about from 9 a.m. on Monday morning until the bank closes on Friday afternoon, and they can fly. And the only way currently in which to replace that liquidity is through European Central Bank lending, which is another word for official sector lending. So the consequence will be that if you had another country, say Spain, go back into the red zone, uh, people with deposits in Spanish banks, even healthy Spanish banks, are going to have to think very carefully about whether to leave them there. Because remember, Cyprus was not just a raid on bank deposits. It it was accompanied by capital controls. So uh, if you're a depositor, the lesson you might take from Cyprus is that uh, it is better to get out of Dodge sooner rather than later. I mean, the, the capital controls, I mean, why? I can see the superficial need for why they felt they needed to impose it. But it is, you set up almost a parallel. I mean, it is, in effect, splintering the Eurozone. And it's just an awful, awful precedent. I, I, my own view, I would have avoided, tried to avoid the imposition of capital controls uh, with every measure possible. I just think for a country that whose economy is principally its financial services industry, the imposition of capital controls is fatal. It, we're not talking about a country where the <coughs> financial services sector is 5 or 10% of the economy. It's a huge percentage of the economy. See, uh, on the capital controls as well, um, two questions, really. I mean, the big one is, yes, they, economically, they might be a bad idea, but are they legal? Are they legal under the EU treaties? And secondly, you mentioned uh, central bank liquidity as a form of official sector lending. Well, that, 
maybe the alternative to capital controls is an onrush of emergency liquidity from the ECB. But we saw in Cyprus that apparently can't be written down because the liquidity to Likey, the, the bank, which is, you know, uh, worst off, um, was simply transferred to another bank. So is, isn't that an issue that this rather core piece of official sector lending uh, is apparently super senior or, you know, compared to, say, a, just a simple loan from a government? Well, it's, it, was, <clears throat> it was a significant feature of what they did. It was, I think, 9 billion euros or more. That's about 50% of the country's GDP. Uh, <clears throat> the loans were outstanding to the second largest bank, which is the one that collapsed completely. And as you rightly say, Joseph, that that liability was moved to the largest bank. It avoided... ECB having to confront a potentially very awkward and embarrassing situation. Uh, Remember that loan would have been collateralized with uh, some form of of security, uh, but to have been put in a position of foreclosing on the security and having then a shortfall which gets uh, wiped out in a bankruptcy, that's that's a pretty embarrassing situation. So I don't think we should be surprised that the European Central Bank used its leverage to ensure that that liability got shifted over. Um, their argument, of course, as it was in Greece, was that ultimately that's taxpayer money that they put in uh, and that they should not be treated as any other creditor of the bank. But, I mean, with the ECB and the role they played in Cyprus, I mean, it is really interesting because on one hand you have Mario Draghi saying he will do whatever it takes to preserve the integrity of the Eurozone, don't bet on the return of the drachma or the lira or anything like that. And on the other hand, he says, well, actually, hang on, guys, sort out Cyprus in a few days, otherwise I cut off the ELA, and in effect send Cyprus tumbling out of the Eurozone. I mean, how can you reconcile those two statements? I mean... Investors clearly would rather believe the whatever-it-takes part of things, but have people forgotten that that threat that Draghi came with? Well, I don't think he would analyse it that way. I think he'd say, I'll do whatever it takes for those who are good European citizens. If you don't take my advice, you have shown yourself not to be a good European citizen. (laughs) I mean, one of the things I want to discuss with both of you uh, is... um, a mutual obsession of, of Joseph's and mine, and something, unfortunately, you cannot talk about, which is Argentina, which you are conflicted on. But still, I mean, if we maybe try and skirt around, I know there, there are strict firewalls. Uh, you are aware of the case. So it'd be interesting hearing your thoughts, because we've had such a fantastically interesting 12 months. I and mean, there's been the Greek debt restructuring with huge advised on. We've had the ascending on trial in London. We've had the NML versus Argentina in New York. I mean, where are we heading with all this? I mean, what do, what does this mean? I mean, Joseph and I have tried to have a stab at it. Joseph, slightly more accurate one than me, but but what do you think? Well, if you look at the last 30 years, you will see that this business has gone through periods when the sovereigns seem to have gotten a bit of the upper hand and periods when the creditors have seemed to have gotten the upper hand. And it has seesawed back and forth like that for 30 years. Uh, What has happened in Argentina is that uh, the creditors have, they hope, uh, seized upon a legal theory that gives them a remedy 
really against their fellow creditors, not so much against the sovereign. And that bit of leverage is something new in the mix. Uh, If that is upheld, if that's the way it ultimately shakes out, uh, one would expect to see then uh, a market reaction that removes that leverage from potential holdouts down the road. So, you know, bond documentation will change and so forth. I should probably add that before we get an irate call from somebody in New York that Elliot thinks that this won't have an impact whatsoever on sovereign debt restructuring. They point out one of your creations, the collective action clauses, as as one of the reasons why this really won't have an impact at all. I mean, uh, well, collective action clauses are are not a complete solution. I mean, they have weaknesses. The principal weakness is that they operate only within the four corners of of a single debt instrument. Now, we have had since Uruguay in May of 2003 a a form of aggregated collective action clause, which does protect a bit more, but that's only in uh, three or four countries. The Europeans... uh, as of June, January 1 of this year, have now mandated that their bonds will have aggregated collective action clauses going forward for sovereign bonds. But it's going to be years before that phases in. You've got to wait for existing bonds to mature and be replaced by ones that have an aggregated feature. So it is, it is undoubtedly helpful, undoubtedly helpful, uh, but not a complete uh, solution to the problem of holdout creditors and sovereign debt restructurings in the near term. Yeah, um, my follow-up question to that really is, Obviously, we're at a moment in the market when the likes of Rwanda can borrow below 7%. In Latin America, uh, the likes of Honduras and many other debut issuers who have never been on the market before can sell bonds at a very attractive interest rate for them, maybe not for whoever's buying it. Uh, But it seems to be the disclosures over the Paris Pursuit Clause vary quite a bit and actually quite a few of those disclosures are very inert. They haven't really changed very much since the shoe kind of dropped on what's happened with NML and Argentina. I mean, why is that? I mean, I know there have been notable exceptions like Belize and uh, maybe a few others, but it seems the pace of change so far doesn't seem very great in actual drafting of bond contracts. It hasn't, and it is an interesting subject. There have been some responses. I think you will see more, Joseph. I think you will see uh, more or less a unified market uh, standard come out of of all of this, but it takes a lot of time. Uh, Remember when a sovereign does a new bond issue, the underwriters are typically as conservative as they can possibly be. So if you had a paripasu in this uh, form in your last bond and the bond sold, uh, minister, do you really want to risk an additional 15 basis points by changing it uh, to take into account this uh, highly remote and theoretical risk? That's the argument. I mean, that's, mm. that's how it comes out. So there is an exceptional amount of stickiness in uh, bond documentation generally and sovereign bond documentation specifically, but it will change. It will change. 
Didn't, didn't Italy tweak its paripasuclos? Well, Italy is interesting. Italy was, uh, I think, the only example of a country that had actually written its paripasu clause to promise rateable payments, non-discriminatory payments of its creditors. Uh, and Italy, in response to this, wound up taking out the that assurance of rateable payments and trimming it back. So they actually went the other way. They were the one example of a country that had promised what the plaintiffs in this lawsuit claim everyone promises, namely a non-discriminatory payment of creditors. Well, uh, slightly worrying maybe that Italy starts tweaking its paripasu clause. Maybe they know something we don't. One of the things that has come back because of all these lawsuits, because of Greece, because of you know the sight of holdout creditors getting paid out at par, is uh, an idea. I mean, you've launched, for example, the idea of of a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism that the IMF first proposed uh, a decade ago now, uh, after Argentina defaulted. Either is some sort of un- enshrined under the European treaties, the European Stability Mechanism Treaty, or under the IMF auspices, under the IMF articles, which is what they first proposed, but it was shot down mercilessly uh, by the Americans. I mean, are we... Is it a pipe dream? Is it going to remain a pipe dream? I mean, are we heading at all in that direction? I think it's a tall order. Uh, it was in 2002 a tall order. If it is to prosper at all, I think there must be a minimalist version of it that will not encounter the kind of fierce political opposition that they that SDRM garnered from the Americans, for example. Uh, the idea of putting it either under the ESM Treaty, the European Stability Mechanism Treaty, or under the IMF Articles, uh, that's simply a choice of the vehicle. You need a vehicle that will incorporate it into domestic law in uh, the you know the, the countries who are members of the uh, of that treaty, and so that's just a vehicle, rather than propose a brand new treaty. You just simply amend an existing one. But it's if something happens, and it might, it might uh, a combination of the uh, recent apparent success of holdout creditors in Argentina, coupled with the European situation, uh, has again stimulated interest in this uh, but if it is to prosper it'll be a, a, a much scaled down version of SDRM which in its original concept uh, was nothing less than a transnational chapter 11 for sovereigns. What is a minimalist version then? What does that look like? A minimalist version at least in my view uh, might say that the IMF continues to perform the function that it traditionally has. So it's the gatekeeper. It is the one that does the debt sustainability analysis. It allocates the burden among the various stakeholders. So the citizens of the country in the form of macroeconomic adjustment, the creditors of the country, commercial and and bilateral, uh, that's the function it already performs. So it would continue to do that. But you might just add on one feature which says that if there is a debt restructuring program consistent with the parameters of the IMF's debt sustainability analysis uh, and a creditor is invited to participate but declines to do so, uh, that that creditor would not be in a position to seize assets of that debtor to satisfy 
the debt that he had declined to put into the program. So in effect, you defang the holdout. You don't remove their ability, put it this way, you don't alter their legal rights in the sense of being able to bring a lawsuit. You do alter their remedies in the sense of being able to attach uh, the debtor's property uh, abroad. Every country already recognizes certain categories of foreign state property that are immune. Embassies, consulates, military property, and so forth. This would add only one additional category, and it would be targeted specifically to a creditor invited to participate on equal terms with his fellow creditors, but who declines to do so. Uh, But Lee, (laughs) you present that as minimalist and scaled down, but isn't asset enforcement and execution really the whole business model of being a holdout? I mean, that's where a lot of the innovation has been over the last 20 or 30 years, I mean, in US courts and, and maybe elsewhere, of actually being able to get your hands on a remedy. Uh, so isn't that really quite a big change? I, I mean, you know, I can get a judgment at any time, but my business model is collecting an actual asset. Yeah. In truth, Joseph, um, everyone has always known that it is difficult to enforce judgments against sovereigns. They do not, typically, sovereigns do not have property in their own name uh, outside of their jurisdiction. Uh, And what property there is, like embassies and consulates, has always been clothed with a special immunity. So it has always been true uh, that a holdout creditor who chooses to litigate, uh, there is a chance they'll find a stray asset. It happens once in a while. Uh, but their principal remedy is a public relations remedy. They're, after all, holding defaulted uh, debt. Uh, the sovereign they know will at some point want to come back to the market. And uh, the idea that there are folks running around uh, giving interviews saying that we used to lend to the Republic of Ruritania and we're still a defaulted creditor, that's leverage for a... Ruritanian Minister of Finance on his roadshow who is singing the Morning in Ruritania theme. Uh, It's an embarrassment, and so eventually they hope that uh, their nuisance value will get them paid. Remember also uh, that a, a holdout creditor, their dream is to be the only holdout creditor. Their chances of getting paid rise exponentially as the number of holdouts declines. Uh, If you have too many holdouts, then there's absolutely no way that the sovereign is going to be able to pay them off. Uh, It just doesn't have the dough. And even if it had the dough, the the public relations uh, uh, stink from doing so would be uh, prohibitive. But if there's only one or two, uh, maybe they can find a stray asset, but they can also say, Minister, it's just not worth it for us to be spoiling the party of Ruritania's uh, return to the markets. I mean, to follow up on Joseph's point, I mean, even this minimalist, I mean, I, I can hear what the creditors will say that essentially they are fighting a big bad sovereign with a machine gun and they only have a, a plastic fork and you'll want to take that fork away from them. They already have, you know, the odds stacked against them, uh, and any sort of taking away their 
ability to seek remedies would be you know a, a pretty strong erosion of creditors' rights, which I mean could have you know systemic impact on the other side. Yeah, but to go back, go back to where it starts. They will have been invited to participate on an even-handed basis with all other similarly situated creditors. Uh, if they decline that uh, and say, I want to be paid in full, that demand to be repaid in full is only possible because all of their fellow creditors gave the country debt relief. So it comes down to, look, this could be said about lenders to corporate borrowers too, but in Chapter 11, the supermajority of creditors controls. They have a direct interest in seeing that holdouts are not allowed to grab a preferential slice of what's left. And so in Chapter 11 and other similar bankruptcy statutes, uh, if a supermajority of creditors agree that this is the debt relief they'll give, then they sweep along any dissident minority. That's it's the, exactly the same principle. For a holdout to say you're, you're taking away my leverage, yes, you're taking away the leverage, I'll put it in explosive words, to exploit uh, the generosity of your fellow creditors. But if a country is <laughs> virtually immune from any sort of attachment from holdout creditors, why don't they just all just say, look, here's the deal? buddy, that's what you're yep. going to get, and that's what you're going to take. Exactly. That's exactly the point. Uh, if you were to say you can only benefit from this if you are subscribing to an IMF program uh, where there has been an allocation, the IMF will will do that as they always do it. Uh, you, it's no longer a question of the sovereign unilaterally saying, this is what I want. The IMF program will have the bitter and the sweet. The bitter will be the macroeconomic adjustment, the austerity program, and all the rest of it. The sweet would be that you have a uh, an opportunity uh, to go forward with the debt restructuring with a reduced risk of holdout creditors. Just one other question there, though, because the way you make that sound, it then becomes very important that the IMF is seen as a good faith gatekeeper, as you described it. They're the one who does the DSA and can precisely prescribe the amount of bitter and the amount of sweet. But in real life, trust in the IMF and any other official creditor the IMF might be working with when it comes to a restructuring, you know, say in Europe, the nice man in Berlin or Paris or wherever, investors' trust in those institutions might be wobbling a bit surely like after the eurozone crisis you know, can we really believe the debt sustainability analyses that come out of these institutions uh you know can we believe that you know they'll take their fair share of the pain if there has to be like a later restructuring so hasn't that become more complicated now if we're considering a return of the SDRM? the problem isn't the holdouts or you know the market in general it's really whether the you know the official sector you know uh, who watches the watchmen, that kind of problem. Yeah, that's a fair comment. <clears throat> I think everyone realizes that the IMF, while the staff may be perfectly competent and neutral, uh, in the end, the board of directors, the executive board of the IMF is composed of people 
who are appointed by their governments, and their governments have their own interests, geopolitical and financial sometimes, in sovereign debt restructurings. And so the concern, Joseph, you're absolutely right, of the market would be, uh, are you going to uh, begin to allow our fate uh, to be uh, subject to the vicissitudes of geopolitical interests of uh, the executive board of the IMF. It's a fair comment. I think if one were to <coughs> resuscitate an SDRM, uh, the one thing that is lacking now is in the preparation of the DSA, it has always been essentially the IMF staff and the local authorities. Uh, they don't really consult more broadly with other affected creditors and so forth. The first time that a bondholder, for example, will know what lies in store is when they pick up the DSA after it's been published, and there'll be a line that says debt service. And in that single line will be the genetic code of the restructuring to come, because it will say this is the amount of money you can spend to service debt in X, Y, Z year in the future. Uh, you do a little bit of arithmetic and you'll figure out pretty much uh, what kind of debt relief the sovereign is going to be asking you for. And even if you're successful enough to convince the sovereign uh, to pay more, the sovereign's going to go back to the IMF and the IMF is going to say, go back in the room because we've only budgeted that you'll pay this month. Or they'll say to the minister, feel free to pay more to your creditors, minister, but you'll need to increase taxes even more. Uh, that's a solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short conversation. Uh, and just to wrap up, of, of all these different countries that uh, you've advised, which one was the most fun to work on? I'm thinking the food in the country, the the hedges on the other side. The one the, the one that sticks in my mind is is as very pleasant was Guatemala. Wonderful people, marvelous climate. Uh, I I really enjoyed that. Yeah, well, I mean, some of the new countries we've seen come to the market, you know. You reckon you'll be in Mongolia in a few years' time? <laughs> we'll Rwanda, see. you know. Apparently, you should go see the gorillas when you're there. <laughs> yes. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Well, Lee, thank you very much uh, for uh, for talking to us. And uh, Joseph, thanks very much for joining us. No this problem. Is, thank uh, you, Lee. Thank you, Joseph. fantastically infrequent podcast. Uh, closing down. Thanks very much. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com.